Well, that's not what we planned on, but uh, we'll, we'll look at to God's word, for certainly it's in his word that uh, we find the comfort that we need. It's the only, our only source of unchanging truth and our final authority in faith and in life. So as, as God's people, as Christians, uh, this, is where we, this is where we find uh, all that we need. So we'll, we'll read God's word and faithfully attend to these things, and uh, we entrust that she's in good hands and And we'll pray as we await news. Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer Naomi, who has come back from uh, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and uh, from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malin's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you, may this young woman, uh, by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, 
Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. It's very difficult in life to be uh, a well-rounded person. Oftentimes, you know, in, in this day and age, we uh, follow the lives of celebrities quite a bit. And uh, sadly, many of their stories are about success out in public and, and great riches and, and great notoriety and fame. But there's a difficulty in keeping their, uh, their private life peaceful, right? their family life oftentimes seems a wreck. And on a more normal level, level everybody has those kinds of, of struggles and decisions that they, they may be faced with, right? To put uh, an inordinate amount of time into your career may make other areas of your life suffer. Even thinking about it in terms of Christian sanctification, that you feel you're making progress in one area only to be reminded that you've got all kinds of other, other things and other sins uh, that you must deal with. And as we bring Ruth to a close this morning, uh, one of the the glorious reminders that we have in chapter 4 of Ruth is the well-roundedness, the all-sufficiency, the perfection of Christ as our Redeemer. He redeems us and he saves us in the courtroom and he gives us a home in the family room. He is there for us when we are at home and away, and he is our comfort in life and in death. And we're reminded that even when we may expect it the least, that God knows our every need, and he will give us exactly what we need according to his wisdom and his knowledge. Also, fittingly, we have on a, on a baptism Sunday a reminder of the heart of God to save and redeem his people through the new life of a newborn child. So let's consider all of those things as uh, we look to Ruth one last time in our study of it. Ruth, of course, is written in the time of the judges, a time of great upheaval, of great immorality, of great rebellion and sin uh, in the land of Israel. And we just went through Judges right before we went through Ruth, so we kind of would have a sense of the context. And we may be tempted to think about that time and say, well, there's basically nothing good going on in Israel at that time. And nothing good was happening amongst God's people. But when we think of that now, we can think of the story of Ruth. That here was God giving this unexpected and immense blessing to his people which was exactly what they needed at exactly the right time. Remember the, the refrain of Judges at the end becomes, there was no king in Israel, and everyone consequently was doing what was right in his own eyes. At that time, in this family that almost falls apart at the beginning, and through these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, what does God give? He gives a new family line that's going to bring the the two premier kings in Israel, both David 
and then eventually Jesus. So with that, uh, we think of where we have been in Ruth, where we have been in uh, Judges, and it reminds us that God is always working. You may think that the time of the Judges, well, if there's ever a time where things are beyond God's ability to, to order everything to his glory, it would be in the Judges. And perhaps we see the chaos that is going on in our world, not only in our nation, but worldwide, and you say, wow, if there's ever a time where you would be tempted to believe that things are beyond God's control, now might be the time. But God is always working, and he's working in, in unexpected ways. As far as the story of Ruth itself, we saw Ruth and Naomi come back from Moab after uh, all of the men in their lives had died, and they come back to Bethlehem, and they're basically left without a future, without hope. But God starts to weave things together. He places Ruth in the fields of Boaz. And Boaz says, I'll I'll provide for you. Don't go anywhere else. My men won't abuse you or take advantage of you. Stay with the girls who work in my field. That will give you an identity, a place and a group to to know and to have friendship and connection. Chapter 3, of course, we have this marvelous episode where Ruth goes to Boaz uh, under obedience to Naomi. And there's that great picture of going to the Redeemer, to go to him, to throw off self-confidence. Even though Ruth doesn't have any place to assume that she would have an audience with Boaz, but what does she do? She goes to the Redeemer, a wonderful picture for us of faith and courage, that grace is free, but grace is given to those who understand that they throw off confidence in themselves and go to the Redeemer just as Ruth did. Ruth goes back to Naomi after she encounters Boaz by night. Boaz doesn't use it as a temptation to take advantage of Ruth. Remains pious and virtuous and loving and tender towards her. Sends her back with all of these blessings, food, and and Naomi says, just wait, your Redeemer will take care of it. Of course, a great picture for us that when we place our trust in Jesus Christ and when we Trust him and and give it all into his hands. Our prophet and priest and king is going to work out our salvation uh, for us and even in us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Ruth 4 has two scenes, basically. The first is a legal scene and the second is a family scene. First we have the the courtroom drama and then we have the, uh, the family room tearjerker. And, and that will show us a lot of what we mean when we say that Boaz points us to Jesus Christ. So the morning after this episode with uh, Ruth and Boaz, Boaz goes to the city gate. And we know that as the story is unfolding that this is a, this is a legal proceeding. Uh, this would have been the place... This was like the courtroom of the city. The, uh, everything happened at the city gate. Oftentimes under the watchtower of the gate, there would be a couple of little meeting rooms. And so it's possible that all 12 of these men, right, Boaz grabs 10 of the elders of the city to function as witnesses. And then he grabs this other kinsman redeemer that we'll talk about in just a minute. Possible that they're all packed into one little room. This is a, a legal proceeding. This is official business of the city. This is the way things were decided back then. Something that's interesting about this other kinsman redeemer is that we don't learn his name. We are never introduced to him. And in the book of Ruth, names are very important. In the history of Israel, 
names are very important. It's, it's, it's important to know about whom we are speaking. But the narrator intentionally withholds his name from us. If we were to translate it, it might be something like this. It's a difficult phrase to translate. But early there where it says, um, the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned. Actually, you could translate it something like, Mr. So-and-so showed up. He intentionally withholds his name. And that causes us to have somewhat of a a decreased view of this man. We don't know his name, and therefore he means less to the reader. We, We kind of naturally think less of him. Is that appropriate? Well, it does seem appropriate. Something that's going on in this story is the reminder that this man, because he does not step out in love for Ruth and Naomi, his name will be forgotten. We won't remember him. But Boaz, as the one who has the faithfulness to redeem, his will be a name that will be uttered all the way to the end of the world. Literally, as long as there's a Christian church in the world, and we know that there always will be a Christian church in the world, the name of Boaz will never stop being mentioned. We will always be talking about him. And we will always be talking about what he did here to create a new line so that David would be born and eventually that Jesus would be born. This other kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, he decides not to redeem the field, redeem these women. Why? Well, he says it would endanger his own estate. So a couple of possibilities for what's going on there. First, it's possible that he's reminded that if he has to take Ruth to be his wife, their first son will, in terms of the law, in terms of legality, that would actually be Malin's son, Ruth's deceased husband. And so perhaps he looks at Ruth and he says, I can't be confident that I'm going to have enough children or enough sons to create uh, a group of sons or boys that I could leave my estate to. It's also possible that he is deterred when Boaz says, this woman is from Moab. Moabites were not particularly well thought of in Israel at that time. They wouldn't be like the Samaritans later on in Jesus' day, maybe not to that extent, but certainly were not a people that were highly thought of in Israel. And maybe this man says, I don't want to marry a Moabite woman. Perhaps it was as simple as that. And this, of course, is no trouble for Boaz. And it's a reminder that our God is a God whose grace has extended to every corner of the earth, to every tribe and tongue and nation. Psalm 87 speaks of this, that there will be those who are numbered amongst those born in Jerusalem from Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Cush, that these will be the people of God one day, that in terms of their birth record, it will be said said they were born in Jerusalem, a wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel. That people born outside of the land of Israel, outside of this ethnic people of God of the Old Testament, would come to know the God of grace. Wonderful reminder for people like us. Like for me, I'm Norwegian. My ancestors were some of the most uh, savage people in the history of the world. Not particularly nice kinds of folks. But because people brought the gospel to that part of the world, uh, everything was changed. So the upshot of this exchange in the courtroom is that Boaz does what, it's, what is right, but Mr. So-and-so seems to only want to act for himself. The law of the kinsman redeemer 
does not actually legally bind either Boaz or Mr. So-and-so from doing what uh, transpires here with Leverett marriage. It only legally binds the immediate brothers of a man who dies and doesn't leave any children. So these are more distant relatives. But Boaz is seeking to obey the spirit of the law, not just the letter. There are all kinds of things in life, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, where the specific commandments of God might not meticulously govern the things that you do or would do. But the spirit of God's law and what we know about his character tells us what is right in many situations. And our desire ought to be to do what is right because we know our God and we know the heart of our God. So because of that, Boaz is ready to do what's right and we have this this legal proceeding where Mr. So-and-so gives him the sandal and that was kind of the way that he was the equivalent of signing a contract or a handshake back then. That's the courtroom drama. Then we have the family room tearjerker. And it begins with this blessing. This blessing that the elders of the city pronounce. May Ruth be counted among those like Rachel and Leah. It's, it's surprising that you have a Moabite woman receive this blessing because those are two of the most famous matriarchs in all of Israel's history. And they would essentially be on the Mount Rushmore of Israelite mothers. And here perhaps the elders are saying something like, may the Lord bless your marriage. And you know, when you're at a wedding or you meet a new couple, sometimes you just sort of say things like that. Perhaps, or hopefully you mean it. But sometimes we just kind of naturally say those kinds of things. May the Lord bless your marriage. Maybe that's what the elders were simply doing. But they're speaking prophetically. Because this woman, Ruth, will end up on the Mount Rushmore of Israelite mothers. So close to King David, named in the genealogy of Jesus. And so they speak prophetically. Of course, we're brought to verse 13 in chapter 4, which brings all of this kind of to a happy narrative close, but very quickly. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. This is all stated quickly and matter-of-factly. But notice that we're not left wondering how it happened. The Lord enabled her to conceive. Here's a woman who was married before, but there were no children from that first marriage. And God, who has purposed all of this from all eternity, and we haven't read about his direct action much in Ruth, but he's always been there, and we we sense that he's guiding everything that's coming together, for it only could have been God who has woven this story together. He gives Ruth this blessing, but we especially focus on the blessing that Naomi experiences at the end. She's the one holding the child. Where there was emptiness and bitterness, Naomi has been filled. You can almost imagine with all of this, with the reversal in Naomi's life, if she would have been familiar with the story of Job, she could have said something like, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So that's the story. Kinsman Redeemer, a king for Israel. That's why Ruth was written, because Israel needed a king. 
and what created the line that brings about King David at the time of the judges, right? Israel is rebellious, Israel is going astray, they need a king. That is their need. And God provides for their need in the most unexpected of ways. Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, points us to and gives us a glorious picture of Christ, who is the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who is the exact thing that we need, a savior from sin, victory over death, eternal life in heaven and in the new heavens and new earth. Through Christ, God attends to our exact needs in the most unexpected of ways for his glory and for our comfort. Boaz is the righteous man from Bethlehem who endures temptation in righteousness and goes to redeem his people. Jesus is the bread of life, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He endured temptation. He went and made purification for sin and for sinners. He's the ultimate kinsman redeemer, not just for Israel, but for all who share in the flesh and blood and the mortality of human life and human experience. For all who know the pain and the toil and the struggles of this life. For all who face the prospect of death. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. Hebrews chapter 2 captures this quite well. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect kinsman redeemer, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's the kinsman redeemer because he shares in flesh and blood, because he tasted death, because he comes to make a way and make victory over the exact thing that puts us in lifelong slavery, fear of death, and the prospect of dying. A perfect parallel to this chapter is also that Christ, as the Redeemer, saves us in the courtroom and gives us blessings in the family room. Right? Boaz goes and has this legal proceeding to redeem Ruth. Ruth goes to the Redeemer, Boaz says, I'm going to go take care of it. He goes to the courtroom and he takes care of exactly all that Ruth needs. And in the same way, Jesus Christ gives us the verdict that we need and we could not otherwise have in the courtroom of God. For all who trust in him and all who believe in him, he stands before the Father and he represents us and his blood covers our sins and his righteousness is given to us freely. He gives us victory in the courtroom. That's justification, you're forgiven of your sins, you're declared righteous, but adoption is another one of the central blessings of the Christian life. That in Christ, to all who are united with him, to all uh, whom he is not ashamed to call his brothers, that they are brought into the number of the children 
of God. They are brought into the family of God, a blessing that cannot be taken away. So when we look to Christ, we see one who is a perfect redeemer, sent to us in the most unexpected of circumstances, who came to this earth as a baby, who grew up as a child, and who now gives us the verdict we need and the family that we long for. A couple things to mention as we bring all of this to a close. The first is God's grace and the joy of human life. God's grace and the joy of human life. We, we notice how God has chosen to bring about redemption for Naomi. And this tells us something about the biblical worldview. It tells us something about how God works in and through his people. We live at a time where there's a lot being done to question the value and the blessing of children. And here we see Naomi's distress, her anguish, her sorrow, her pain, her suffering. All are centered around the loss of life, but how are they alleviated? Through new life, the life of a beautiful baby. With that, we know that this is something that God values and God treasures. But it also points us forward, right? When we look at a baby, a newborn child, what fills your heart? Joy. Right? You are filled with joy when we see a beautiful newborn child. But it reminds us that when we, whenever we see a newborn child, there should be something in the minds of every Christian that reminds us that there was a time where our Savior was that age. There was a time where Jesus Christ, God the Son, was held in the arms of his mother. And so the joy of babies teaches us something about the joy of Christ. What else fills your hearts with little baby children? Love. We love little children because they're given to us by God. God is the Lord and the giver of life. We love them. And it's natural to do so. But because our heart is so filled with love, we're reminded that first and foremost, we're to love our God and to love our Savior, Jesus Christ. What else are we reminded of when we see little children? New life, right? They have their whole lives ahead of them. All that God will do in and through them. We're reminded that when we trust in Christ, we have new life. Our sins are washed away and God makes all things new. We're also challenged in this story, Ruth and Boaz, in the midst of an evil and perverse generation, in the midst of a nation that has gone off the rails into wickedness, what do they do? They serve God with their lives, they are virtuous, and they wait on the Lord. And that's exactly what we are called to do. We are to seek to glorify God by our living and we wait on the Lord. We seek virtue and we trust in his providence. First Peter chapter 2, the apostle says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we have no lasting city. We are made citizens of another world, of another age. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of wickedness, when we find ourselves tempted to say, perhaps God has, has lost his control of all things, remember this story. And remember two people 
who served God. Remember, two people whose whose virtue and whose character shined brightly in the midst of a wicked generation. And they waited on the Lord and he gave his redemption. And that's the final point, that God gives us exactly what we need. He attends to our exact needs according to his wisdom and his knowledge. In those days, there was no king in Israel. But everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so what was God doing? Out of the wilderness in chapter 1, remember Ruth clings to Naomi. Out of that providential meeting in the fields in chapter 2. Out of that risky episode in chapter 3 where Ruth goes to Boaz at night. And out of the the tense moments in the courtroom drama in chapter 4, God was always at work. And so we're reminded, brothers and sisters, in our lives, God is always at work. And he gives us exactly what we need because he knows exactly what we need. And I, my heart has been a little bit uh, teetering in the last several minutes as we, we saw our sister uh, wheeled away and, and we'll be praying for her. But we're reminded at all times... And in all circumstances, he knows our needs. And he gives us exactly what we need. And in times of great uncertainty, he is at work. And when we can't see his plan, he is at work. And when we can't understand the kind of of tapestry he's bringing together for all of history, he's at work. He calls us to trust those things, that he makes all things work together for our good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. Today, we've kind of had encounters with with the beginning of life and those approaching the end of life. Baptism is actually, in many ways, we read that form, form number two in the church order, and it, it thrusts us forward to the end of life. May this child one day stand before her God and be found unstained and saved through the blood of Christ. We have no hope unless the God that we worship is with us and is our God from womb to tomb, from the first second we breathe to our very last moment on this earth. And that is how powerful God is. That is a reminder of how much he loves us. He never walks away from his people. He never abandons his people. He's always at work. He's always bringing about the greatest result of his glory and our good. So because of that, we can be comforted. Because of that, we can continue to trust in him. As we look to the examples before us in scripture, and as we ultimately set our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who came from Bethlehem, who's the bread of life, who lived, who died for us, who ascended into heaven, who broke through uh, the evil of death, who has destroyed our enemy and left him powerless against us, who's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment and a guarantee of that new creation life that we will enjoy, that we inherit in Christ. Through all of these things, we are reminded that there is nothing greater than giving your all, all of your confidence to this God, to going to the Redeemer, trusting in him with all that you are and all that you have, and asking for his grace to never leave, to never leave the side of your Redeemer.
for he is working out all things. He reigns in heaven. He intercedes for you. And our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives us exactly what we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to worship. And we, we ask uh, that you would be with the Coster family today. And, and we pray for, for anyone who um, may be struggling with uh, well, either what we've seen or the, the reality that, that we are uh, called to be reminded of that, um, that life is fragile. And so even as we pray for protection over our sister, we pray for all of our hearts and, and souls as we, as we think about these things and seek to worship you. We thank you for eternal life, uh, which you give to us and which you promise to us in Christ. So we stand in Christ alone, and through that, uh, we seek to give you all the glory. In his name, amen.